0: part eleven of the naval war of eighteen twelve by theodore roosevelt this librivox recording is in the public domain part eleven from the thirteenth of august to the tenth of september both fleets were on the lake most of the time each commodore stoutly maintaining that he was chasing the other and each expressing in his letters his surprise and disgust that his opponent should be afraid of meeting him though so much superior in force the facts are of course difficult to get at but it seems pretty evident that yeo was determined to engage in heavy and chauncy in light weather and that the party to leeward generally made off the americans had been reinforced by the sylph schooner of three hundred tons and seventy men carrying four long thirty twos on pivots and six long 6s. Theoretically, her armament would make her formidable, but practically, her guns were so crowded as to be of limited use, and the next year she was converted into a brig mounting 24-pound carronades. On the 11th of September, a partial engagement at very long range in light weather occurred near the mouth of the genesee river the americans suffered no loss whatever while the british had one midshipman and three seamen killed and seven wounded and afterward ran into amherst bay one of their brigs the melville received a shot so far under water that to get at and plug it the guns had to be run in on one side and out on the other chauncey describes it as a running fight of three and a half hours the enemy then escaping into amherst bay footnote letter to the secretary of the navy september thirteenth eighteen thirteen And a footnote james page thirty eight says that at sunset a breeze sprang up from the westward when sir james steered for the american fleet but the american commodore avoided a close action and thus the affair ended this is a good example of james's trustworthiness his account is supposed to be taken from commodore yeo's letter footnote letter to admiral warren september twelfth eighteen thirteen and a footnote which says at sunset a breeze sprang up from the westward when i steered for the false duck islands under which the enemy could not keep the weather gauge but be obliged to meet us on equal terms this however he carefully avoided doing in other words yeo did not steer for but away from chauncey both sides admit that yeo got the worst of it and ran away and it is only a question as to whether chauncey followed him or not of course in such light weather chauncey's long guns gave him a great advantage he had present ten vessels the pike madison oneida sylph Tompkins, conquest Ontario, Pert, American, and Asp, throwing one thousand two hundred eighty-eight pounds of shot with a total of ninety-eight guns. Yeo had ninety-two guns, throwing at a broadside one thousand three hundred seventy-four pounds. Nevertheless, Chauncey told but part of the truth in writing as he did. I was much disappointed at sir james refusing to fight me as he was so much superior in point of force both in guns and men having upward of twenty guns more than we have and heaves a greater weight of shot his inferiority in the long guns placed yeo at a great disadvantage in such a very light wind but in his letter he makes a marvellous admission of how little able he was to make good use of even what he had he says i found it impossible to bring them to close action we remained in this mortifying situation five hours having only six guns in all the squadron that would reach the enemy not a carronade being fired now according to james himself naval occurrences page 297 he had in his squadron two long 24s 13 long 18s two long twelves and three long nines and in a fight of five hours at very long range in smooth water it was a proof of culpable incompetency on his part that he did not think of doing what elliot and perry did in similar circumstances on lake erie substitute all his long guns for some of the carronades on the engaged side Chauncy could place in broadside seven long thirty twos, eighteen long twenty fours, four long twelves, eight long sixes. So he could oppose thirty seven long guns, throwing seven hundred and fifty two pounds of shot to Yeo's twenty long guns, throwing three hundred and thirty three pounds of shot. The odds were thus more than two to one against the British in any case, and their commander's lack of resource made them still greater. But it proved a mere skirmish, with no decisive results. The two squadrons did not come in contact again till on the 28th in York Bay. The Americans had the weather gauge, the wind being fresh from the east. Yeo tacked and stretched out into the lake while Chauncey steered directly for his centre. When the squadrons were still a league apart, the british formed on the port tack with their heavy vessels ahead the americans got on the same tack and edged down toward them the pike ahead towing the asp the tompkins under lieutenant bolton finch next the madison next being much retarded by having a schooner in tow then the sylph with another schooner in tow the oneida and two other schooners the british fearing their sternmost vessels would be cut off at twelve ten came round on the starboard tack beginning with the wolf commodore yeo and royal george captain william howe mulcaster which composed the van of the line they opened with their starboard guns as soon as they came round when the pike was a beam of the wolf which was passed. The centre of the British line. The Americans bore up in succession for their centre. The Madison was far back, and so was the Sylph, neither having cast off their toes, so the whole brunt of the action fell on the Pike, Asp and Tompkins. The latter kept up a most gallant and spirited fire till her foremast was shot away. But already the Pike had shut away the wolf's main-topmast and main-yard and inflicted so heavy a loss upon her that commodore yeo not very heroically put dead before the wind crowding all the canvas he could on her forward spars and she ran completely past all her own vessels who of course crowded sail after her the retreat of the commodore was most ably covered by the royal george under captain mulcaster who was unquestionably the best British officer on the lake. He luffed up across the Commodore's stern and delivered broadsides in a manner that won the admiration even of his foes. The Madison and Sylph, having the schooners in tow, could not overtake the British ships, though the Sylph opened a distant fire. The Pike kept on after them, but did not cast off the Asp, and so did not gain and at three fifteen the pursuit was relinquished footnote letter of commodore chauncy september twenty eighth eighteen thirteen and a foot when the enemy were running into the entirely undefended port of burlington bay whence escape would have been impossible the tompkins had lost her foremast the pike her foretop gallant mast with her bowsprit and mainmast wounded and of her crew five men were killed or wounded almost all by the guns of the royal george these were the only injuries occasioned by the enemy's fire but the pike's starboard bow chaser burst killing or wounding twenty-two men besides blowing up the top-gallant forecastle so that the bow pivot gun could not be used among the british ships the wolf lost her main topmast, mizzen topmast, and main yard, and the Royal George her foretopmast. Both suffered a heavy loss and killed and wounded, according to the report of the British officers captured in the transports a few days afterward. As already mentioned, the British authorities no longer published accounts of their defeats, so Commodore Yeo's report on the action was not made public. Brenton merely alludes to it as follows, Volume Two, Page Five O Three. The action of the twenty-eighth of September, eighteen thirteen, in which Sir James Yeo in the Wolf had his main and mizzen top masts shot away, and was obliged to put before the wind, gave Mulcaster an opportunity of displaying a trait of valor and seamanship, which elicited the admiration of friends and foes when he gallantly placed himself between his disabled commodore and a superior enemy james speaks in the vaguest terms he says first commodore chauncey having the weather-gauge kept his favourite distance which he did because commodore yeo fled so fast that he could not be overtaken then james mentions the injuries the wolf received and says that it was these and not as mr clark says a manoeuvre of the commodore's that threw the british in confusion in other words it was the commodore's shot and not his manoeuvring that threw the british into confusion a very futile distinction next he says that commodore chauncey would not venture within carronade range whereas he was within carronade range of the wolf and royal george but the latter did not wait for the madison and oneida to get within range with their carronades the rest of this article is taken up with exposing the absurdities of some of the american writings miscalled histories which appeared at the close of the war His criticisms on these are very just, but afford a funny instance of the pot calling the kettle black. This much is clear, that the British were beaten and forced to flee when but part of the American force was engaged, but in good weather the American force was so superior that being beaten would have been no disgrace to Yeo, had it not been for the claims advanced both by himself and his friends that on the whole he was victorious over chauncey the wolf made anything but an obstinate fight leaving almost all the work to the gallant mulcaster in the royal george who shares with lieutenant finch of the tompkins most of the glory of the day the battle if such it may be called completely established chauncey's supremacy yeo spending most of the remainder of the season blockaded in kingston so chauncy gained victory which established his control over the lakes and moreover he gained it by fighting in succession almost single-handed the two heaviest ships of the enemy but gaining the victory was only what should have been expected from a superior force the question is did chauncy use his force to the best advantage and it cannot be said that he did when the enemy bore up it was a great mistake not to cast off the schooners which were being towed they were small craft not of much use in the fight and they entirely prevented the madison from taking any part in the contest and kept the sylph at a great distance and by keeping the asp in tow the pike which sailed faster than any of yeo's ships was distanced by them. Had she left the Asp behind and run in to engage the Royal George, she would have mastered or at any rate disabled her, and had the swift Madison cast off her toe, she could also have taken an effective part in the engagement. If the Pike could put the British to flight almost single-handed, how much more could she not have done when assisted by the Madison and Oneida? the cardinal error however was made in discontinuing the chase the british were in an almost open roadstead from which they could not possibly escape commodore chauncy was afraid that the wind would come up to blow a gale and both fleets would be thrown ashore and moreover he expected to be able to keep a watch over the enemy and to attack him at a more suitable time but he utterly failed in this last and had the american squadron cast off their toes and gone boldly in they certainly ought to have been able to destroy or capture the entire british force before a gale could blow up Chauncy would have done well to keep in mind the old adage so peculiarly applicable to naval affairs lorace toujours lorace et encore laurice whether the fault was his or that of his subordinates it is certain that while the victory of the twenty-eighth of september definitely settled the supremacy of the lake in favour of the americans yet this victory was by no means so decided as it should have been taking into account his superiority in force and advantage in position and the somewhat spiritless conduct of his foe next day a gale came on to blow which lasted till the evening of the thirty first there was no longer any apprehension of molestation from the british so the troop transports were sent down the lake by themselves while the squadron remained to watch yeo on october second he was chased but escaped by his better sailing and next day false information induced chauncy to think yeo had eluded him and passed down the lake and he accordingly made sail in the direction of his supposed flight. On the 5th at 3 p.m., while near the false ducks, seven vessels were made out ahead, which proved to be British gunboats engaged in transporting troops. All sails was made after them. One was burned, another escaped, and five were captured, the Mary, Drummond, Lady Gore, Confiance, and Hamilton footnote letter of commodore chauncey october eighth eighteen thirteen and a footnote the two latter being the rechristened julia and growler each gun vessel had from one to three guns and they had aboard in all two hundred sixty four men including several naval three royal and four provincial and ten military officers these prisoners stated that in the action of the twenty-eighth the wolf and royal george had lost very heavily after this yeo remained in kingston blockaded there by Chauncey for most of the time on november tenth he came out and was at once chased back into port by Chauncey, leaving the latter for the rest of the season entirely undisturbed accordingly chauncey was able to convert his small schooners into transports on the seventeenth these transports were used to convey eleven hundred men of the army of general harrison from the mouth of the genesee to sackett's harbor while chauncey blockaded yeo in kingston the duty of transporting troops and stores went on till the twenty seventh when everything had been accomplished and a day or two afterward navigation closed as between the americans and british the success of the season was greatly in favor of the former they had uncontested control over the lake from april nineteenth to june third and from september twenty eighth to november twenty ninth in all one hundred seven days while their foes only held it from june third to july twenty first or for forty eight days and from that date to september twenty eighth for sixty nine days the sides were contending for the mastery york and fort george had been taken while the attack on sackett's harbour was repulsed the americans lost but two schooners both of which were recaptured while the british had one twenty four gun ship nearly ready for launching destroyed and one ten gun brig taken and the loss inflicted upon each other in transports gunboats storehouses stores etc was greatly in favor of the former chauncey's fleet moreover was able to cooperate with the army for over twice the length of time Yeo's could one hundred seven days to forty eight it is more difficult to decide between the respective merits of the two commanders we had shown so much more energy than the anglo-canadians that at the beginning of the year we had overtaken them in the building race and the two fleets were about equally formidable the madison and oneider were not quite a match for the royal george and sydney smith opposing twelve thirty two pound and eight twenty four pound carronades to two long eighteens one long twelve one sixty-eight pound and thirteen thirty-two pound carronades, and our ten gun schooners would hardly be considered very much of an overmatch for the melville motra and beresford had sir james yeo been as bold and energetic as barclay or mulcaster he would certainly not have permitted the americans when the forces were so equal to hold uncontested sway over the lake and by reducing Fort George to cause disaster to the British land forces. It would certainly have been better to risk a battle with equal forces than to wait till each fleet received an additional ship which rendered Chauncey's squadron the superior by just about the superiority of the pike to the wolf. Again, Yeo did not do particularly well in the repulse before Sackett's harbour in the skirmish off genesee river he showed a marked lack of resource and in the action of the twenty eighth of september popularly called the burlington races from the celerity of his retreat he evinced an amount of caution that verged toward timidity in allowing the entire brunt of the fighting to fall on mulcaster in the royal george a weaker ship than the wolf On the other hand, he gave able cooperation to the army when he possessed control of the lake. He made a most gallant and successful attack on a superior force on the 10th of August, and for six weeks subsequently, by skillful maneuvering, he prevented this same superior force from acquiring the uncontested mastery. It was no disgrace to be subsequently blockaded, but it is very ludicrous in his admirers to think that he came out first best Chauncey rendered able and invaluable assistance to the army all the while that he had control of the water his attacks on york and fort george were managed with consummate skill and success and on the twenty eighth of september he practically defeated the opposing force with his own ship alone nevertheless he can by no means be said to have done the best he could with the materials he had his stronger fleet was kept two months in check by a weaker british fleet when he first encountered the foe on august tenth he ought to have inflicted such a check upon him as would at least have confined him to port and given the americans immediate superiority on the lake instead of which he suffered a mortifying although not at all disastrous defeat which allowed the british to contest the supremacy with him for six weeks longer on the twenty-eighth of september when he only gained a rather barren victory it was nothing but excessive caution that prevented him from utterly destroying his foe had perry on that day commanded the american fleet there would have been hardly a british ship left on ontario Chauncey was an average commander, and the balance of success inclined to the side of the Americans only because they showed greater energy and skill in shipbuilding, the crews and commanders on both sides being very nearly equal. Lake Erie Captain Oliver Hazard Perry had assumed command of Erie and the Upper Lakes, acting under Commodore Chauncey with intense energy he at once began creating a naval force which should be able to contend successfully with the foe as already said the latter in the beginning had exclusive control of lake erie but the americans had captured the caledonia brig and purchased three schooners afterward named the somers tigris and ohio and a sloop the tripe these at first were blockaded in the niagara but after the fall of fort george and retreat of the british forces captain perry was enabled to get them out tracking them up against the current by the most arduous labor they ran up to presca isle now called erie where two twenty gun brigs were being constructed under the directions of the indefatigable captain three other schooners the ariel scorpion and porcupine were also built the harbour of Erie was good and spacious, but at a bar on which there was less than seven feet of water. Hitherto this had prevented the enemy from getting in. Now it prevented the two brigs from getting out. Captain Robert Harriet Barclay had been appointed commander of the British forces on Lake Erie, and he was having built at Amherstburg a twenty-gun ship. Meanwhile, he blockaded perry's force and as the brigs could not cross the bar with their guns in or except in smooth water they of course could not do so in his presence he kept a close blockade for some time but on the second of august he disappeared perry at once hurried forward everything and on the fourth at p.m. one brig the lawrence was towed to that point of the bar where the water was deepest her guns were whipped out and landed on the beach and the brig got over the bar by a hastily improvised camel two large scows prepared for the purpose were hauled alongside and the work of lifting the brig proceeded as fast as possible pieces of massive timber had been run through the forward and after ports and when the scows were sunk to the water's edge the ends of the timbers were blocked up supported by these floating foundations the plugs were now put in the scows and the water was pumped out of them by this process the brig was lifted quite two feet though when she was got on the bar was found that she still drew too much water it became necessary in consequence to cover up everything, sink the scows anew, and block up the timbers afresh. This duty occupied the whole night. Footnote Cooper, volume two, page three hundred eighty-nine. Perry's letter of August fifth is very brief, and a footnote. Just as the Lawrence had passed the bar at eight a.m. on the fifth, the enemy reappeared, but too late. Captain Barclay exchanged a few shots with the schooners and then drew off. The Niagara crossed without difficulty. There were still not enough men to man the vessels, but a draft arrived from Ontario and many of the frontiersmen volunteered, while soldiers also were sent on board. The squadron sailed on the 18th in pursuit of the enemy, whose ship was now ready. After cruising about some time, the Ohio was sent down the lake, and the other ships went into put-in bay. On the ninth of September, Captain Barclay put out from Amherstburg, being so short of provisions that he felt compelled to risk an action with the superior force opposed. On the tenth of September, his squadron was discovered from the masthead of the Lawrence in the northwest before going into details of the action we will examine the force of the two squadrons as the accounts vary considerably the tonnage of the british ships as already stated we know exactly they having been all carefully appraised and measured by the builder mr henry eckford and two sea captains we also know the dimensions of the american ships the lawrence and niagara measured four hundred eighty tons apiece the caledonia brig was about the size of the hunter or one hundred eighty tons the tigress somers and scorpion were subsequently captured by the foe and were then said to measure respectively ninety-six ninety-four and eighty-six tons in which case they were larger than similar boats on lake ontario the ariel was about the size of the hamilton the porcupine and tripe about the size of the asp and pert as for the guns captain barclay in his letter gives a complete account of those on board his squadron he has also given a complete account of the american guns which is most accurate and if anything underestimates them at least emmons in his history gives the tripe a long thirty two while barclay said she had only a long twenty-four and lossing in his field-book says but i do not know on what authority that the caledonia had three long twenty-fours while barclay gives her two long twenty-fours and one thirty-two pound carronade and the summers had two long thirty-twos while barclay gives her one long thirty-two and one twenty-four pound carronade i shall take barclay's account which corresponds with that of Emmons, the only difference being that Emmons puts a 24-pounder on the scorpion and a 32 on the tripe, while Barclay reverses this. I shall also follow Emmons in giving the scorpion a 32-pound carronade instead of a 24. It is more difficult to give the strength of the respective crews. James says the Americans had 580 all-picked men, They were just as much picked as Barclays were, and no more. That is, the ships had scratch crews. Lieutenant Emmons gives Perry 490 men, and Lossing says he had upon his muster roll 490 names. In Volume 14, page 566 of the American State Papers, is a list of the prize monies owing to each man, or to the survivors of the killed, which gives a grand total of 532 men, including 136 on the Lawrence and 155 on the Niagara, 45 of whom were volunteers, frontiersmen. Deducting these, we get 487 men, which is pretty near Lieutenant Emmons's 490. Possibly, Lieutenant Emmons did not include these volunteers, and it may be that some of the men whose names were down on the prize list had been so sick that they were left on shore. Thus Lieutenant Yarnell testified before a court of inquiry in 1815 that there were but 131 men and boys of every description on board the Lawrence in the action, and the Niagara was said to have had but 140. Lieutenant Yarnell also said that but one hundred three men on board the lawrence were fit for duty as captain perry in his letter said that thirty-one were unfit for duty this would make a total of one hundred thirty-four so i shall follow the prize-money list at any rate the difference in number is so slight as to be immaterial of the five hundred thirty-two men whose names the list gives forty-five were volunteers or landsmen from among the surrounding inhabitants. One hundred fifty-eight were marines or soldiers. I do not know which, as the list gives marines, soldiers, and privates, and it is impossible to tell which of the two former heads include the last. And three hundred twenty-nine were officers, seamen, cooks, purser's, chaplains, and supernumeraries. Of the total number, there were on the day of action, according to Perry's report one hundred sixteen men unfit for duty including thirty-one on board the lawrence twenty-eight on board the niagara and fifty-seven on the small vessels all the later american writers put the number of men in barclay's fleet precisely at five hundred two but i have not been able to find out the original authority james naval occurrences page 289 says the british had but 345 consisting of 50 seamen 85 canadians and 210 soldiers but the letter of adjutant general e Bain, november twenty-fourth, 1813 states that there were 250 soldiers aboard barclays squadron of whom 23 were killed 49 wounded and the balance 178 captured and james himself on a previous page two hundred eighty four states that there were one hundred and two canadians on barclay's vessels not counting the detroit and we know that barclay originally joined the squadron with nineteen sailors from the ontario fleet and that subsequently fifty sailors came up from the dover james gives at the end of his naval occurrences some extracts from the court-martial held on captain barclay lieutenant thomas stokes of the queen charlotte there testified that he had on board between 120 and 130 men officers and altogether of whom sixteen came up from the dover three days before james on page 284 says her crew already consisted of 110 men adding these sixteen gives us 126 almost exactly between 120 and 130. Lieutenant Stokes also testified that the Detroit had more men on account of being a larger and heavier vessel. To give her 150 is perfectly safe, as her heavier guns and larger size would at least need 24 men more than the Queen Charlotte. James gives the Lady Prevost 76 hunter thirty nine little belt fifteen and Chippeway thirteen men canadians and soldiers a total of one hundred forty three supposing that the number of british sailors placed on them was proportional to the amount placed on board the queen charlotte we could add twenty one this would make a grand total of four hundred forty men which must certainly be near the truth this number is corroborated otherwise. General Bain, as already quoted, says that there were aboard 250 soldiers, of whom 72 were killed or wounded. Barclay reports a total loss of 135, of whom 63 must therefore have been sailors or Canadians. And if the loss suffered by these bore the same proportion to their whole number, as in the case of the soldiers, there ought to have been two hundred nineteen sailors and canadians making in all four hundred sixty-nine men it can thus be said with certainty that there were between four hundred forty and four hundred ninety men aboard and i shall take the former number though i have no doubt that this is too small but it is not a point of very much importance as the battle was fought largely at long range where the number of men provided there were plenty to handle the sails and guns did not much matter the following statement of the comparative force must therefore be very accurate perry's squadron the lawrence a brig four hundred eighty tons one hundred thirty six total crew one hundred five crew fit for duty three hundred pounds of broadside three long twelves and eighteen short 32s the niagara a brig 480 tons crew 155 crew fit for duty 127 broadside pounds three hundred, two long twelves and 18 short 32s the caledonia a brig 180 tons 53 total crew 80 pounds of broadside metal two long twenty-fours and one short thirty-two the ariel a schooner one hundred and twelve tons thirty-six total crew forty-eight pounds of broadside metal four long twelves the scorpion a schooner eighty-six tons thirty-five total crew sixty-four broadside pounds of metal one long thirty-two and one short thirty-two the somers a schooner ninety-four tons thirty total crew 56 pounds of broadside metal one long 24 and one short 32 the porcupine a schooner 83 tons 25 crew 32 pounds of broadside metal one long 32 the tigress a schooner 96 tons 27 crew 32 pounds of broadside metal one long 32 the tripe a sloop 60 tons 35 crew 24 pounds of broadside metal one long 24 For a total of nine vessels 1671 tons 532 total crew total fit for duty 416 and 936 pounds of broadside metal During the action however the lawrence and the niagara each fought a long twelve instead of one of the carronades on the engaged side making a broadside of eight hundred ninety six pounds two hundred eighty eight pounds being from long guns barclays squadron the detroit a ship four hundred ninety tons one hundred fifty crew one hundred thirty eight pounds of broadside metal one long eighteen two long twenty fours six long twelves eight long nines and one short twenty four the queen charlotte a ship four hundred tons 126 crew 189 pounds of broadside metal one long twenty four two long nines fourteen short twenty fours the lady prevost a schooner 230 tons Crew of eighty-six, seventy-five pounds of broadside metal, one long nine, three long sixes, ten short twelves. The hunter, a brig, one hundred and eighty tons, forty-five crew, thirty pounds of broadside metal, four long sixes, two long fours, and two long twos. The chipaway, a schooner, seventy tons, fifteen crew, nine pounds of broadside metal, one long nine the little belt a sloop ninety tons eighteen crew eighteen pounds of broadside metal one long twelve and two long sixes for a total of six vessels one thousand four hundred sixty tons four hundred and forty crew and four hundred and fifty nine pounds of broadside metal these six vessels the threw at a broadside four hundred fifty nine pounds of which one hundred ninety five were from long guns the superiority of the Americans in long gun metal was therefore nearly as three is to two and in cannonade metal greater than two to one the chief fault to be found in the various American accounts is that they sedulously conceal the comparative weight of metal while carefully specifying the number of guns thus Lossing says Barclay had 35 long guns to Perry's 15, and possessed greatly the advantage in action at a distance, which he certainly did not. The tonnage of the fleets is not so very important. The above tables are probably pretty nearly right. It is, I suppose, impossible to tell exactly the number of men in the two crews. Barclay almost certainly had more than 440 men i have given him but in all likelihood some of them were unfit for duty and the number of his effectives was most probably somewhat less than perry's as the battle was fought in such smooth water and part of the time at long range this as already said does not much matter the niagara might be considered a match for the detroit and the lawrence and caledonia for the five other british vessels so the americans were certainly very greatly superior in force at daylight on september tenth barclay's squadron was discovered in the northwest and perry at once got under way the wind soon shifted to the northeast giving us the weather gauge the breeze being very light barclay lay too in a close column heading to the southwest in the following order Chip away, Master's Mate J. Campbell, Detroit, Captain R. H. Barclay, Hunter, Lieutenant G. Bignall, Queen Charlotte, Captain R. Finnis, Lady Prevost, Lieutenant Edward Buchanan, and Little Belt, by whom commanded is not said. Perry came down with the wind on his port beam and made the attack in column ahead obliquely First in order came the Ariel, Lieutenant John H. Packet, and Scorpion, Sailing Master, Stephen Champlin, both being on the weather bow of the Lawrence, Captain O. H. Perry. Next came the Caledonia, Lieutenant Daniel Turner, Niagara, Captain Jesse D. Elliot, Somers, Lieutenant A. H. M. Conklin, Porcupine acting master george serrat tigress sailing master thomas c Almy and tripe lieutenant thomas holdup footnote the accounts of the two commanders tally almost exactly barclay's letter is a model of its kind of candour and generosity letter of captain r h barclay to sir james september second eighteen thirteen of lieutenant inglis to captain barclay september tenth of captain perry to the secretary of the navy september tenth and september thirteenth and to general harrison september eleventh and september thirteenth i have relied mainly on lossing's field book of the war of eighteen twelve especially for the diagrams furnished him by commodore champlain on commander ward's naval tactics page seventy six and on cooper's naval history extracts from the court-martial on captain barclay are given in james's naval occurrences volume eighty three and a Footnote. as amid light and rather baffling winds the american squadron approached the enemy perry's straggling line formed an angle of about fifteen degrees with the more compact one of his foes at eleven forty five the detroit opened the action by a shot from her long twenty four which fell short at eleven fifty she fired a second which went crashing through the lawrence and was replied to by the scorpions along thirty two at eleven fifty five the lawrence having shifted her port bow chaser opened with both long twelves and at Peridian began with her cannonades but the shot from the latter all fell short at the same time the action became general on both sides though the rearmost american vessels were almost beyond the range of their own guns and quite out of range of the guns of their antagonists meanwhile the lawrence was already suffering considerably as she bore down on the enemy It was twenty minutes before she succeeded in getting within good carronade range, and during that time the action at the head of the line was between the long guns of the Chipaway and Detroit, throwing one hundred twenty-three pounds, and those of the Scorpion, Ariel, and Lawrence, throwing one hundred four pounds. As the enemy's fire was directed almost exclusively at the Lawrence, she suffered a great deal the caledonia niagara and somers were meanwhile engaging at long range the hunter and queen charlotte opposing from their long guns ninety-six pounds to thirty-nine pounds of their antagonists while from a distance the three other american gun vessels engaged the prevost and little belt by twelve twenty the Lawrence had worked down to close quarters and at twelve thirty the action was going on with great fury between her and her antagonists within canister range. The raw and inexperienced American crews committed the same fault the British so often fell into on the ocean and overloaded their carronades. In consequence, that of the scorpion upset down the hatchway in the middle of the action, and the sides of the Detroit were dotted with marks from shot that did not penetrate. One of the Ariel's long 12s also burst. Barclay fought the Detroit exceedingly well, her guns being almost excellently aimed, though they actually had to be discharged by flashing pistols at the touch-holes. So deficient was the ship's equipment. Meanwhile, the Caledonia came down, too, but the Niagara was wretchedly handled. Elliot keeping at a distance which prevented the use either of his carronades or of those of the queen charlotte his antagonist the latter however suffered greatly from the long guns of the opposing schooners and lost her gallant commander captain finnis and first lieutenant mr stokes who were killed early in the action her next in command provincial lieutenant irvine perceiving that he could do no good passed the hunter and joined in the attack on the lawrence at close quarters the niagara the most efficient and best manned of the american vessels was thus almost kept out of the action by her captain's misconduct at the end of the line the fight went on at long range between the somers tigress porcupine and tripe on one side and little belt and lady prevost on the other the lady prevost making a very noble fight although her twelve pound carronades rendered her almost helpless against the long guns of the americans she was greatly cut up her commander lieutenant buchan was dangerously and her acting first lieutenant mr roulette severely wounded and she began falling gradually to leeward the fighting at the head of the line was fierce and bloody to an extraordinary degree the scorpion ariel lawrence and caledonia all of them handled with the most determined courage were opposed to the Chippeway, detroit queen charlotte and hornet which were fought to the full as bravely at such close quarters the two sides engaged on about equal terms the americans being superior in weight of metal and inferior in number of men but lawrence had received such damage in working down as to make the odds against perry on each side almost the whole fire was directed at the opposing large vessel or vessels in consequence the queen charlotte was almost disabled and the detroit was also frightfully shattered especially by the raking fire of the gunboats her first lieutenant mr garland being mortally wounded and captain barclay so severely injured that he was obliged to quit the deck leaving his ship-in-command of lieutenant george inglis but on board the lawrence matters had gone even worse the combined fire of her adversaries having made the grimmest carnage on her decks of the one hundred three men who were fit for duty when she began the action Eighty-three, or over four-fifths, were killed or wounded. The vessel was shallow, and the wardroom, used as a cockpit to which the wounded were taken, was almost above water, and the shot came through it continually, killing and wounding many men under the hands of the surgeon. The first lieutenant, Yarnall, was three times wounded, but kept to the deck through all the only other lieutenant on board brooks of the marines was mortally wounded every brace and bow line was shot away and the brig almost completely dismantled her hull was shattered to pieces many shot going completely through it and the guns on the engaged side were by degrees all dismounted perry kept up the fight with splendid courage As the crew fell one by one, the Commodore called down through the skylight for one of the surgeon's assistance, and this call was repeated and obeyed till none were left. Then he asked, Can any of the wounded pull a rope? And three or four of them crawled up on deck to lend a feeble hand in placing the last guns. Perry himself fired the last effective heavy gun assisted only by the purser and chaplain a man who did not possess his indomitable spirit would have then struck instead however although failing in the attack so far perry merely determined to win by new methods and remodelled the line accordingly mr turner in the caledonia when ordered to close had put his helm up run down on the opposing line, and engaged at very short range, though the brig was absolutely without quarters. The Niagara had thus become the next in line astern of the Lawrence, and the sloop tripe, having passed the three schooners in front of her, was next ahead. The Niagara now, having a breeze, steered for the head of Barclay's line, passing over a quarter of a mile to windward of the Lawrence on her port beam she was almost uninjured having so far taken very little part in the combat and to her perry shifted his flag leaping into a rowboat with his brother and four seamen he rowed to the fresh brig where he arrived at two thirty and at once sent elliot astern to hurry up the three schooners the tripe was now very near the caledonia The Lawrence, having but fourteen sound men left, struck her colors, but could not be taken possession of because the action recommenced. She drifted astern, the Caledonia passing between her and her foes. At 2.45 the schooners, having closed up Perry in his fresh vessel, bore up to break Barclay's line. The British ships had fought themselves to a standstill the lady Prevost was crippled and sagged to leeward though ahead of the others the detroit and queen charlotte were so disabled that they could not effectively oppose fresh antagonists there could thus be but little resistance to perry as the niagara stood down and broke the british line firing her port guns into the Chipaway, little belt and lady prevost and the starboard ones into the detroit queen charlotte and hunter raking on both sides two disabled to tack the detroit and charlotte tried to wear the latter running up to leeward of the former and both vessels having every brace and almost every stay shot away they fell foul The Niagara luffed athwart their bows within half pistol-shot, keeping up a terrific discharge of great guns and musketry, while on the other side the British vessels were raked by the Caledonia, and the schooners so closely that some of their grape-shot passing over the foe rattled through Perry's spars. Nothing further could be done, and Barclay's flag was struck at 3 p.m after three and a quarter hours most gallant and desperate fighting the chippeway and little belt tried to escape but were overtaken and brought to respectively by the tripe and scorpion the commander of the latter mr stephen champlin firing the last as he had the first shot of the battle captain perry has behaved in the most humane and attentive manner not only to myself and officers, but to all the wounded rights, Captain Barclay. The American squadron had suffered severely, more than two-thirds of the loss falling upon the Lawrence, which was reduced to the condition of a perfect wreck, her starboard bulwarks being completely beaten in. She had, as already stated, twenty-two men killed, including Lieutenant of Marines Brooks and Midshipman Lamb, and sixty-one wounded, including Lieutenant Yarnall, midshipman, acting second-lieutenant Forrest, sailing-master Taylor, purser, Hamilton, and midshipman Swartout and Claxton. The Niagara lost two killed and twenty-five wounded, almost a fifth of her effectives, including among the latter the second-lieutenant, Mr. Edwards, and midshipman Cummings the caledonia had 3 the somers 2 and tripe 2 men wounded the ariel had 1 killed and 3 wounded the scorpion 2 killed including midshipman lamb the total loss was 123 37 were killed and 96 wounded of whom 3 died the british loss falling most heavily on the detroit and queen charlotte amounted to 41 killed including captain s j garden r n and captain r a fenness and ninety four wounded including captain barclay and lieutenants stokes buchan roulette and bignall in all 135 the first and second in command on every vessel was killed or wounded a sufficient proof of the desperate nature of the defence the victory of lake erie was most important both in its material results and in its moral effect it gave us complete command of all the upper lakes prevented any fears of invasion from that quarter increased our prestige with the foe and our confidence in ourselves and ensured the conquest of upper canada in all these respects its importance has not been overrated but the glory acquired by it most certainly has been estimated at more than its worth most americans even the well educated if asked which was the most glorious victory of the war would point to this battle captain perry's name is more widely known than that of any other commander every schoolboy reads about him if of no other sea captain yet he certainly stands on a lower grade than either hull or mcdonough and not a bit higher than a dozen others on lake erie our seamen displayed great courage and skill but so did their antagonists the simple truth is that where on both sides the officers and men were equally brave and skillful the side which possessed the superiority in force in. The proportion of three to two could not well help winning the courage with which the lawrence was defended has hardly ever been surpassed and may fairly be called heroic but equal praise belongs to the men on board the detroit who had to discharge the great guns by flashing pistols at the touch-holes and yet made such a terribly effective defence courage is only one of the many elements which go to make up the character of a first-class commander something more than bravery is needed before a leader can be really called great part